working as a poet being mentored by another poet I mean that's how life has always been in poetry going back generations she is also the one who really pushed me to go after what I want um, and so we were sitting in my kitchen and we were like you know what it would be good if other poets can experience it we're like why don't we do it let's do it when do we start next week let's start next week this is Verse Mentors a four part podcast series exploring the world of poetry and mentoring I'm Will May, and I'll be hearing from poets, researchers, mentors and tutors across the UK as we uncover the intricate web of support that gets our best words into the best places. There was, you know, this idea that to network you had to go to those literary parties and perhaps to drink a lot of alcohol. Uh, you know, so that was quite difficult for, for women with uh, you know, young, uh, young children. And that leads me to the question, really, should mentoring be tied to success in a competition? So in the history of poetry, in the history of literature, people can talk really comprehensively about the male legacies of, of, of interaction. But I, it, it feels to me, when I look at it, at it, that the female legacy of interaction gets erased. Welcome to Verse Mentors, a four-part podcast series on poetry and mentoring. I'm Will May from the University of Southampton, and in each half-hour episode, we'll be hearing from three guests who will talk to us about how they've benefited from giving and receiving one-to-one support for their work. Together, we'll be considering the various places mentoring happens, from kitchen tables to publishing houses to bus stops. We'll be thinking about the hidden history of mentoring and discussing why the stubborn myth of the lone poet won't die. We'll hear firsthand some of the technical advice that's changed the directions of writers' careers and what it is that mentors learn from the writers they work with across their lives. In our second episode, How Do Poets Learn?, we'll be joined by the poet Malika Booker and researchers Lisa Jallion and Sue Dimmock. They'll be helping us piece together some of the hidden histories of poetry mentoring in the UK, histories that often reveal the centrality of women poets to changing the culture of some often very male literary institutions. We'll hear about how pioneering mentors helped open up the often closed world of UK poetry to wider communities. First off, we'll hear from the poet Malika Booker, who talked to us about why and how she set up her own poetry workshop in her kitchen. When we first started um, performing in the 90s, I think people like Roger Robinson and myself, we wanted to keep learn to learn craft. We were we were performing our poems, and but we wanted to develop, further develop. Spread the Word put on a thing called Afro Style School for Black poets. And we went and we were taught by Kwame Dawes, and it was invaluable. The leaps we made in our work in that space of time. Um, and so part of the thing, when Kwame Dawes, he, he was, he'd won the forward and he was over from, he taught in South Carolina. So when he was over, they would do a... Um, at Afro Style School, and we would just go. The landscape felt desolate. Um, there wasn't there wasn't all these spaces around at that time that were developing writing. And I felt like I wanted. I think Roger and I felt like we wanted other people to experience what we, fe- we experienced with Kwame, and we knew so much poets around. Um, and so we were sitting in my kitchen, and we were like, you know what? It would be good if other poets can experience. We like, why don't we do it? Let's do it. When do we start next week? Let's start next week. In a UK literary culture that seemed to have no reference points for what they were doing, Malika and Roger Robinson turned to the teaching books of Jamaican-American poet June Jordan for some ideas. We, we designed it like she did around developing work, 
workshopping work and workshopping work and also um at that at that time we developed it on bringing the work alive to an audience as well how do we do that but like as poetry kitchen was a a space where people came and developed their craft so it was it was always like what are we doing this week we're going to look at you know we're going to look at metaphor we're going to look at these poems and in, in it was like a kind of workshop structure. But actually, mm-hmm. when I think about it, it was Roger and I leading it at the beginning all the time. So we were mentoring. As we learned things, we were passing it on. Gradually, Kitchen developed and we invited Jacob Samler Rose to come on as well to teach with us. And then gradually, we it became a space where each one teach one as people learn new skill as people learn skills. We would well, also started skilling people up to deliver to deliver workshops. So after you've been in kitchen for about for a while, you'll be asked, can you lead a session? And then you most probably will freak out. Um, and so you will be you will be um, kind of um, supported to run your first kitchen workshop for your peers. Malika's model of mentoring, community led and collaborative, responsive, training mentees to be mentors proved hugely successful. It was one guy in our kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the, um, well, in my kitchen, it was my house. Um, and then the next week, it just started growing and growing. And by the time, you know, kitchen got to the stage where there were 12, 14 people in in my in my house every Friday. Um, just, you know, writing, reading poems, talking about poetics. I would say that it was a meant, it, even though it was workshop. It was a mentoring. We were mentoring them and we were passing on skills to them around um, and things we learned around, you know, sometimes it was things around setting up a five year plan or a three year plan or where you want your writing to be, setting writing goals or working towards a collection. So we also were mentoring and modeling reading, like the importance mm-hmm. of reading for craft, for craft, for, yeah. for work, the importance of stretching your knowledge of poetry, of reading out. I mean, it's not until this interview that I thought about it as mentoring, but I think it was, it was, yeah. Kitchen developed a kind of two-tier. So you had the mentoring from Roger, myself, and then Jacob. And then you had the peer mentoring that was going on at the same time. People would team up to share their work with each other. It was a very intimate space. We always made sure it was a safe space. So, you know, we wrote, we asked, people could interrogate and ask questions about the, the, the practice that we were doing that day or, you know, People could also kind of have informal chats about how their writing was going, about whether they were reaching their goals that they'd set. The more I learned about the influence of Poetry Kitchen on UK poetry, the more it seemed that the history of the poetry mentor was being hidden from view. This is something Malika's picked up on too. I think there's so much good people who have who are who are so responsible for the interventions that have led to a, a, a diverse voices um, across the strata of society. So if I think about, I think Mimi Cavati and Pascal Petit, and there's a third person starting the poetry school, mm-hmm. um, and 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 how much investment they had mentoring so much generations of poets. And now the poetry school is an organisation, but people don't realise that Mimi and Pascal, you know started this endeavor in the same way that I started Kitchen as a way to kind of mentor and help develop and pass their skills on to another generation. And mm-hmm. and they, I, I, I want, sometimes I wonder whose book 
has come out that has not been mentored by Mimi Kavati. Like, I just think that there should be an award for someone like Mimi. She works tirelessly. The work, the amount that we pay her to mentor, to mentor us is, is, is not, it doesn't pay for what she's achieved. Most of the people she's mentored go on to win prizes. Um, and I think for me, like she's one of the unsung heroines of mentorship. Mentorship's unsung poets so often seem to be heroines. Is it because women poets and poets of colour have been so central to the process of mentoring in the UK that their legacy has been downplayed? So in the history of poetry, in the history of literature, people can talk really comprehensively about the male legacies of, of, of interaction. But I, it, it feels to me when I look at it, at it, that the female legacy of interaction gets erased, right? Mm. Yeah, so how how was I going to the poetry school for so long and did not know until they had a birthday that these two women who mentored me personally were, were responsible for this setting up this space that I come to? Um, and how and how much do people mentor, mention those mentors outside of when they get prizes, when they get the acknowledgements, do they mention those mentors? Um, I think that's really I think that's really important to do so that we can see the trajectory of the interactions and we could yeah. see the impact of these in these what I call um, um, interventions and and measure them and see uh, how impactful they are. Because yeah. for me, I'm just, I'm like. Wait a minute, you were mentored by me and you and you and you and you and you and you. Oh, right. You're trying to get a grant so that Mimi can look at your collection before it comes up. And you and you. It's so um, interesting. But this is so silence, right? Our next guest on today's podcast has also been exploring some of the silences in mentoring, particularly around the role of women. Dr. Lise Jayon. Senior Lecturer in Digital Humanities at the University of Loughborough has worked extensively with the archives of the Manchester poetry publisher Carcanet. Her research helps us to tell new histories of poetry in the UK and explore the roles that editors, readers and publishers play in shaping the collections and careers of individual poets. Michael Schmidt founded Carcanet in 1969 and has been central to its success ever since. But as Dr Jalliant's discovering, other people played a key role. I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with, uh, with this project is to think a little bit more about um, diverse voices, you know, people who have influenced the press uh, and perhaps are not at the center, you know, of the narratives that we, um, we, we use when we talk about Carcanet Press. So, for example, I'm very interested in the work of women, you know, who, um, who worked for Carcanet when it started becoming a more, um, a larger press. I mean, it's a it has never been, you know, mainstream publisher, but it started becoming a little bit larger in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, you had people like Robin Marsak, uh, who joined the press in the 1980s, uh, Janet Allen, mm -hmm. uh, Judith Wilson, uh, Helen Touquet. Those are, you know, um, you know, quite influential women uh, who contributed to Carcanet. 
so um so those women really played a, a wide range of roles you know so not only as editors but also they worked in marketing in production when i um interviewed robin she said um you know this when we think of the women associated with carcanet you know they were all intelligent people you know they had relationships with the authors very good working relationship and it's really you know that she, she was really telling me about you know the kind of uh, connections that editors uh, create with authors, with poets. Um, and of course, those women also had uh, an interest in writing themselves. Uh, so for example, um, Judith Wilson and Helen Tuke uh, went on to, uh, to teach and publish poems after you know, working for Karkinet. They became uh, published poets themselves. Lisa's research has discovered careers and lives that seem central to the development of poetry, both in the UK and abroad, but whose contributions seem to be hidden. Yet there's also a hidden contribution in the work of the presses themselves. She talked to me about two Carcanet authors, Alison Brackenbury and Elizabeth Jennings, whose careers were shaped by the very individual mentoring support they received from the publisher. Michael Schmidt obviously acted as a mentor for, for many, many poets, um, you know, of um, his generation and younger poets as well. Um, and one example I would like to take is uh, the role that he has played with, um, you know, women poet called Alison Brackenbury. Um, and what's interesting here is that uh, both Schmidt and Alison Brackenbury studied at uh, the University of Oxford. Um, so you have this uh, Oxford connection here. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, you know, their uh, social background was totally different. I mean, Michael Schmidt grew up in a very wealthy American family uh, based in Mexico, uh, whereas Alison Brackenbury, you know, she came from a very modest social background. Um, her father was a lorry driver. Her mother was a teacher. Uh, she went to a state school, you know, in the, in the countryside. And she told me, you know, when, uh, when when we uh, interviewed her, she told us that she had a very uh, rocky time at Oxford. You know, she didn't feel part uh, of Oxford. She felt quite uh, isolated. And, uh, you know, she, she really had trouble with networking, you know, with, uh, with meeting other people, you know, it's, uh, she, she didn't feel part of this Oxford network, basically. Um, and of course, Schmidt, you know, had a, a different experience at Oxford, you know, he was very busy networking at the Oxford Poetry Association. Uh, he started editing Carcanet magazine, uh, you know, a student magazine uh, that connected Oxford with Cambridge. And of course, he created Carcanet Press, you know, just after that in 1969. Um, so Brackenbury had, uh, had more modest ambitions. You know, she uh, became a librarian in a, in a technical college, uh, and then she worked part-time because she also started a family. Um, and she, she worked for her husband's um, uh, business, you know. So, so basically she had a, a totally uh, different working, uh, working experience, you know, compared to, uh, to Schmidt. That sense of being different and being treated differently continued 
even as Alison Brackenry's career flourished and she won the Eric Gregory Award. And she said, um, okay, so first there was a suspicion that, you know, that she was perhaps a, a token woman uh, chosen for, for her gender instead of the quality of her poetry. So that was the first thing, really, you know, this anxiety of being a token woman. Um, and second, there was, you know, this idea that to network, you had to go to those literary parties and perhaps to drink a lot of alcohol. Uh, you know, so that was quite difficult for, for a woman with, uh, you know, uh, young, uh, young children. Lisa's archival research has uncovered the sustained kind of support the Brackenry needed across her whole career. One of the challenges that she faced was to continue to publish while caring for her family. Uh, and, you know, that, uh, that was a bit slower for her because she had to combine various responsibilities. Uh, well, Alison Brackenbury really told us that uh, Michael Schmidt has been very, very supportive. Uh, she told us, you know, Michael was completely loyal, very understanding. Um, you know, he continued to edit her work, to proofread, you know, so, so things uh, continued, you know, for her, she managed to, to continue to publish, even though perhaps she was a, a little bit slower than people who did not have, you know, family, who did not have uh, caring responsibilities. This support, whether or not we call it mentoring, needed to be tailored to an individual poet. Elizabeth Jennings, an established writer first associated with the movement, was publishing her poetry with Macmillan when she suffered a breakdown. Her subsequent collections gained poor reviews and slow sales, but Michael Schmidt had a plan. So really, he played a major role in, uh, in reviving the career of Elizabeth Jennings. Uh, as you know, Elizabeth Jennings was older. You know, she was born in 1926, uh, so she was approximately uh, 20 years older than, uh, than Schmidt. Um, so what he did, he really uh, edited her work to make sure that she pub published only her best poems, uh, or what he saw as her best poems, you know, that's very much, uh, you know, a judgment here. In the late 1960s and 1970s, um, the market for poetry was increasingly saturated and commercial publishers, you know, publishers like Macmillan started slimming down their list. So you had a sort of poetry recession. Um, you know, you had major uh, established authors that had to find other publishers just because you know, their existing publishers were no longer committed to their work. The first time he met her was in 1968, and he later uh, told the story, you know, of their first meeting, and he said, you know, she was quite lonely, uh, so uh, we had tea together, uh, which was actually, you know, instead of tea, they had white wine, apparently, and, you know, so, so that was the start of this, uh, of this uh, friendship between uh, Schmidt and Jennings. Uh, told Jennings in 1976 uh, that he had this strategy for her, you know, he wanted to publish only, uh, only the best work, basically. And that would be uh, the, the best way to uh, regain, uh, regain a readership, because you remember that her career was quite in decline. And the good, the good thing, really, is that his, um, his editorial work was you know, quite, uh, quite successful in the sense that uh, Jennings managed to find this readership again. And Growing Points was, uh, was a commercial success. Uh, so after just one year, you know, they managed to uh, sell 3,000 copies. Uh, and of course, Jennings uh, had some uh, royalties, you know, she was quite happy. 
From talking to both Malaika and Lise, we get a sense of how central these writing communities or publishing interventions have been to the history of modern poetry in the UK. So armed with this knowledge, what can we learn from people who are taking part in mentoring right now? Can it help us find out more about what works and why? Sue Dimmock is a practising poet and an associate professor at Nottingham Trent University. She's following a group of writers taking part in the Foyle Young Poet Scheme, tracking how they respond to the mentoring they receive. I asked her what motivated her research. I became particularly interested in it because mentoring is one of the things that is offered to people who are winners of the Foyle Young Poets of the Year Award. And um, they were kind of our constituent group. Um, all the participants that we are working with are either former winners, top 15 winners, or in that top 100 highly commended. One of the things they offer to those top 15 people is this mentoring opportunity. Um, it is a little bit unclear what that mentoring opportunity involves. In interviewing the poets, that was something we wanted to draw out, along with lots of other things about their writing development, whether there are any benefits that they had seen themselves, generally about their perspectives on, on mentoring. Um, and it's quite clear that it's very variable. I asked Sue how you might go about evaluating mentoring and whether or not it had been a success. I mean, my, as a researcher, I'm very much a qualitative researcher, so I would want to get the perspectives of all involved. I wouldn't want some kind of formal checklist to say, have they hit all these particular marks? Have they achieved so many publications or have they won so many competitions? Because it's not, mentoring's not like that, is it? It's, a, it's about, it's much more nuanced. It's about different stages in, in a writer's um, life. Talking to researchers as well as practising poets about mentoring is interesting because researchers are forced to define their terms, including the term mentor. Well, I think one of the, one of the things that I'm, we're beginning to um, sort of question is, you know, what does mentoring actually consist of? Um, and what's the difference between mentoring and tuition? Because some, I, I think, in some of the some of the ways um, young people we've interviewed have responded to it, what they're telling us about is really high quality tuition rather than mentoring. Uh, and how do you draw that line between those two things? I think where people have gone into a lot of detail about form or about really, really editing very, very closely a poem together, looking at its you know, looking at its imagery or looking at the diction within it, really fine-grained and perhaps looking at a particular form and how that work fits to that form. That, to me, implies a kind of a, a shared teach, a teaching, mm. really. Yeah. Um, whereas I would say that mentoring is kind of a bit broader than that. It might be looking at a body of work. It might be looking at, say, a group of poems. How do these work together? Or what? where are you going to go with these poems? Are, are they what you're writing now? Or, you know, where do you see yourself in 18 months' time? Something else that Sue's research is uncovering is just how differently a competitive mentoring experience will land with a young person who's had little previous experience of support for their work, alongside someone whose educational background might mean they're very familiar with the advantages of having a mentor. And so th this person is called... Ewan and he says 
I didn't really have anybody to look at my work or give me that external encouragement. But that changed when I got a mentorship. So he applied after being highly commended. And she was really, she, he gave her some of my poems. She was really encouraging. It gave me the confidence to continue. But then he went on to say, I don't think that there's enough young people who get that sort of external validation. You don't get it unless you win a mentor, a mentorship, or you have lots of family are interested in reading, reading your poems. If you don't get that encouragement, you don't get that confidence, he says. And I think some people, they just give it up after a while. Mm -hmm. And that was in the first interview that I did with him. And uh, I've interviewed him again recently. And we get them to reflect on some of the things they said to us a, a year ago. And he still very much stands by that. Uh, yeah. And is still hungry for that kind of mentoring himself. You know, he's had, he's had a taste of it now. Um, whereas other people who we've interviewed, mentoring is something that's much more familiar to them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one person I interviewed seemed to have had mentors all her life and talked about them. She talked about her various figures who helped me and she compared her mentoring that she was receiving for her writing with the mentoring she was receiving for her rowing. So increasingly, the interviews Sue's doing help her think not just about how mentoring works and why it works, but who gets to be mentored and why that's important. How do you um, give people access to those different mentoring opportunities in the first place is another big issue for me, because some of the people that were highly commended that we've interviewed interestingly they haven't benefited so much from going on a residential um, at the Hearst or any other of on place but they've seen and heard the opportunity what the opportunity might involve and that's given them a greater hunger if you like to go on to apply for other things where they might have a chance of gaining um, gaining mentoring and, and there are several examples of that, actually, in the people that I personally interviewed who said, no, well, I went on and I, I applied for X with the Scottish Book Trust or I applied for um, the Barbican Young Poets or I applied for, you know, a, a variety of the writing squad, that kind of thing. Not necessarily getting in, but knowing that, ah, oh, I've seen a glimpse of what this could involve. I want some more of that. Mm. Um, and that leads me to the question, really, should mentoring be tied to success in a competition? Should it be linked to a prize? Are there lots of people who might be very reluctant to enter competitions or not even know about them, who mm. actually could benefit a lot more from mentoring? Talking to all three of our guests on this podcast, it seems clear that how poetry mentoring happens, the structures that support it, the people who are included or excluded from its benefits perhaps matters as much as what happens. It seems increasingly clear that any history of poetry that doesn't tell its story leaves out the central role, particularly of women and black communities, to nourishing UK poetry today. It also seems clear that at the centre of any successful mentoring relationship is courage on both sides. And with that in mind, we'll finish off today's podcast by hearing from Malika Booker about what makes a good mentor. And you'll need your cup of tea at the ready for this one. 
I think the first thing that you have to do um, in that mentoring as a mentee is leave your ego out the door. If you develop a relationship where you want that person, especially if you're the more you develop and the more you become seasoned as a poet, you want that person to be really, really hardcore. You want your mentor to be able to call you on your shit. Sometimes you do need to know what you're doing good, but then you understand that's what you do. But it's the unconscious habits and weirdness that you do that you need that person to have an honest space to call you up on. And that sometimes it feels embarrassing, it feels naked, it feels vulnerable to have that to have that be pushed up. Sometimes it becomes a very, very tense, vulnerable space because that person's bought up something or something's come up that means that you have to examine and expose not only yourself, but maybe something in your family or maybe a, uh, you don't know what the art is going to unearth. To be open to that if you're with someone you trust because those breakdowns, those spaces of, 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 uh, tension and of um, friction or a vulnerability or of completely feeling like this is oh uh, that's when the breakthrough happens and if you if your mentor is someone that you can trust to have that relationship with then that will be the breakthrough and in life that is you know if your boss is someone if someone if someone can say you know you this is this is your brilliant person blah 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 but this is where you slurp your tea do you know you slurp your tea and you're like oh man i this is what then but then you then you then what what it is the learning doesn't happen there but then the next time you have tea you go oh my god i slurp my tea maybe that's why that date with that guy didn't work because you ordered tea yeah, and maybe then you wouldn't order tea at a date, <laughs> the first date. Or maybe you'll think, because you don't, you're like, listen, slurping the teas. Oh, I'm all up into slurping. I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm all up into slurping the tea, right? So I'm not going to change that, but maybe I'm not going to order tea on the first date. Or maybe you go, I need to like figure out a different way to drink tea. However, at the back of that, what the mentoring or the thing did is it, it started you to interrogate something and that interrogation is important for growth this has been verse mentors a four-part podcast series exploring the world of poetry and mentoring funded by the arts and humanities research council i'm will may from the university of southampton and join me in our third episode what do poets know when we'll be hearing from heidi williamson Vidin Ravantheeran and Andrew McMillan about the very different kinds of places mentoring